You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Another week, another chat. Another guys, podcast. I'm really excited about this guest. Yes. Who do we have on this show this week? You guys, George Saunders. We had hey. George Saunders. He and I uh, talked in a very small office in the back of uh, the McNally Jackson bookstore in New York City. Shouts to McNally Jackson. He was uh, about to do an event with Ben Stiller, and there was like a line around the block we were in this little office and people wanted to know if they could get into the event and the phone kept ringing and uh, I just kept picking it up and hanging it up because <laughs> I didn't think to unplug it and I kept trying to get George Saunders to pick up the phone and be like, hi, this is George Saunders. I don't know if you can get into my event, but uh, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot going on in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to assume that most people listening to this show are familiar with um, George Saunders, at least his fiction. Uh, if you're not I do recommend uh, Joel Lovell's profile of him uh, this year for New York Times Magazine. It's very excellent. And he discusses that in the Joel Lovell uh, episode of this podcast. Yeah. he uh, So Saunders is mostly known for that short fiction, but he's also done a bunch of nonfiction. And he wrote a whole bunch of travel pieces for GQ uh, several years ago. Uh, my favorite of them is called Buddha Boy, and it's never been online before. We talk about it a bunch, actually, in the episode. And uh, he was gracious enough to give us the rights to reprint it on Longform. So if oh, you go to awesome. longform.org right now... Or after you listen, uh, that story's up in full for the first time. Oh, that's great. I've never even read it. Have you read it, Evan? I have read it. I love it. This week, our episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Uh, long-form listeners can download a free ebook on us. Get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com forward slash longform. That's audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Quick word about these sponsors who have a... Uh, a keyword or a, a URL that you can use, that actually really helps us uh, put on this show. So uh, if you do go to Audible, please, slash longform. Thank you. Once you go to Audible, you get that free book, you read the books. book's really good. You want to Excellent. tell a lot of people about the book. Good stuff. You should go to tinyletter.com. They're our second sponsor. It's a uh, fast, elegant way to send an email newsletter. You can tell everyone about the book you read. It's done by the good people at MailChimp. Uh, we thank them for their sponsorship. Uh, one note on sponsors, which uh, I would like to just clear up quickly. Uh, we saw some confusion on Twitter last week or two weeks ago or whenever that George Saunders Random House uh, sponsorship was. Um, here's the way that we pick guests on the show. Uh, we only have people on the show that we're really excited to talk to. Uh, and sometimes 
those people may intersect with advertisers. Uh, in this case, I'd been trying to get George Saunders on the show for a long time. I uh, was pretty desperate to. Stuff got to get. And Random House came to us, said they wanted to start advertising both on our website and on the podcast. Uh, in December, they chose to push the paperback version of Saunders' book. Um, but some people thought that this episode that you're listening to now was sponsored by Random House somehow. And I, I just want to make clear that um, that's not how this works. Uh, that's not how we choose guests. It will not be how we choose guests in the future. Uh, there may be intersection between these things. That's pretty um, natural considering who wants to advertise on the show. But, uh, but we should say uh, while we're at it, the way we choose guests includes uh, people recommending guests to us. So we all have long lists of people we'd like to talk to, but we also people who hit us up on Twitter or send an email saying, hey, you should either talk to more of this type of person or you should talk to this specific person. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to that. So please do that. Yeah, at Longform Podcast on Twitter, uh, editors at longform.org. Uh, let us know who you want to hear from, and we will go get that person. And for now, here's Max with George Saunders. Hey, George Saunders. Hey. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. It's thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. I feel... Um, uh, I can't decide what the right metaphor is. We are sitting in like uh, the back office at McNally Jackson because in an hour or two hours you are going to do an event with Ben Stiller. Right. And I, I can't decide whether like um, I'm like the like hype man that comes on before the comic to get the like audience ready, except that's you. So I'm just tiring you out. Or whether there's like the, some sort of undercard in a boxing match, except again, they would not actually have the like no, heavyweight. He- fight the undercard you're, as well. you're the rhetoric elevating entity you're gonna get me up into the space of rarefied language so i can just walk in there and knock them dead i'm just gonna really try and not tire you out yeah yeah okay um so 10th of december came out like a, a year ago this Almost week exactly a year ago, yeah. yeah seems like it's been a pretty crazy year for you it's been the best year the yeah. best year yeah, 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 yeah. crazy yeah. in a really like, good totally way great yeah I, I we could list all the accolades and things that have come. Um, there are many. We'll put them in the show notes, maybe. Yeah. But how has it been? It's, how has this honestly, year been? It sounds like a sappy answer, but it's been nothing but fun. I mean, I think maybe if it was if I was thirty, it would have been complicated, or at least I would have felt how, the need to make it complicated. Complicated in what way? You know, just uh, you know, it's kind of like I, I have had this. I follow this arc in my life. When you're young, you th- you think naturally that the world revolves around you and it's been waiting for you to show up and, you know, and that uh, that you're kind of the first fully formed human being to arrive, you know. And then as you get older and you have experiences, and in my case, you know, family and kids and long years in the wilderness, that falls away. And you're like, oh, yeah, so actually I'm just, you know, I'm just here and I'm going to be gone. And, it's, and that's the proper idea. But then when something like this last year happens, you kind of, I, you flash back to when you were young. Oh, maybe I am. You know, <laughs> turns out. Out. Yeah, it turns out. So that, that's dumb. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean that, but that is, like I said, at 30, that would be, I think you would just say, oh, I had that brief delusional period where I wasn't central. Right. Now I'm, this is confirming but, the earlier stuff. Right. But at 55, it's, that stuff is pretty well, you kind of understand it. So it's a fun uh swerve you know from that because it feels less real or less important less well actually uh i think it's because you've had the opportunity to be in touch with stuff that is that is a more accurate barometer of who you are so in my case to have labored at the short story all these years and uh to have come 
pretty nakedly up against my own limitations and then kind of try to sneak around them and try to, you know, like you, you, the artistic hustle that you do to exploit what talent you have. Having done that, you know uh, how good and also how not good you are. You kind of know what your deal is. And so, you know, when I'm teaching or I go back to work, the craft is a great I mean, it's a great humbler if you're honest enough to look at it. So I, I, you know, I love this book and I think it's, I'm really happy with it, but I also know what I could do Mm -hmm. and I know what others have done. So let's not be too crazy, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, did you expect this to happen? Like, did you know that you had this book in you and did you know once you were done with this book that it would, that it would lead to this? Did you? No, I, I had, I didn't even know that this existed at you know <laughs> I, I thought i was doing great and then and then after this year i'm like oh so this is what it feels like to actually sell books and have an audience you know so i didn't expect it and uh uh and i think even when the book was done i was real happy with it but i had i think if we had talked you know 14 months ago and if i was being honest i would have said i'm a little nervous about it because this book felt to me more i think i would have said uh there's more realism in it and less wildness and mm-hmm. i would and you know you do that thing where you think you know what your audience wants. And I thought it was, uh, I don't know, wildness isn't the best word, but kind of edgy, strange shit. Uh, and I was a little bit self-conscious about this book because it's got more stories that could probably pass for so-called realism than the other ones. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll, you know, in, in your in your dream where you have the, the worst reviews, my anticipated worst reviews were he's gone totally flaccid, he's turning into a realist, he's abandoned his good shit at the door. and, and So it was surprising. Uh, that, yeah, surprising. It was surprising, but what do you, why do you think it happened? I, well, I think it was a, uh, I don't know, actually. You know, I, I, and I, I honestly try not to think about it too much because then you get a little obsessed with trying to make it happen again. But my experience of it was that it was uh, a confluence of the, the New York Times article was a huge thing. That was a huge, generous act by Joe Lovell. And that you know, shot it out of a cannon. And I think it, to mix metaphors, it shot out of the cannon and then landed in a field that had been, you know, this is really a mixed metaphor, but prepared by years of work. So there were people who kind of uh, had read the other books and liked them. They liked it. Uh, and when the book, when that article came out, a lot of people who had never heard of me picked up the book. And I think this book, maybe because of the aforementioned, re, you know, quasi-realism, was a little easier of a uh, sort of an entry? I think so. I, I mean, that's just a guess. I really don't know, you know. One of the things that the, you know, your editor that Andy said about this book uh, when we talked to him, when I talked to him a couple months ago, was that it was also um, a bit more open, which was also kind of the, the sort of thesis of yeah, that yeah. profile that Joel wrote. I, I think it's true. And I think that's, a, uh, you know, just a, a result of getting older and also working the artistic vineyard a while so you get more comfortable in certain zones that might have scared you at 30 you know so uh, in this book I would get to a place where the younger me would have gotten a little flinchy maybe and run away you know or not maybe not even that maybe it's just the younger me was more interested in the catastrophic things that can happen in life so now in this book there'd be a couple places where uh, the swerve would have been to the negative and i was able to abide there a little longer and find mm-hmm. something else and maybe it was a little true or something like that but i mean the other thing the, the true thing is andy i mean what i if i had to be really honest which i you know i should go ahead yeah yeah well i don't know as long as we're not recording this but uh <laughs> but i mean the real difference is andy he, he he we had a meeting uh he was kind of a latecomer to the sort of process of trying to get the book and and uh he said what do you, what do you how do you see this book and i told him he said i told i get that let's do that you know and he did it he just like i i think he's got a kind of a very quiet 
humble, magical touch that he, because of his understanding of the book and his enthusiasm for it, he somehow, in that mysterious way that a good editor has, he he put it out in the world, into the world in that flavor, and the world received it in that flavor. So he he was just a he was influencing this book before he was my editor of the book. We, right when he was at GQ, he had. Um, you know, we did those those field pieces, those travel. Yeah, pieces. I really want to talk about those, but yeah. let's, I want to just stay on tenth of December sure, for sure. a second longer. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in how this year of success and these uh, accolades, and how being on the cover of the New York Times Magazine on January seventh with the headline, you know, George Saunders has written the best book you'll read this year. How like how has that changed you? Has it changed you? I hope I hope not. You know, I mean, I, the the crass answer is it's kind of made me happier. Really, I just <laughs> I feel more confident, and I'm you know kind of like uh, I I take minor slights a lot a lot better, and um, so I don't know really. I, I think it, yeah. I don't have know. Have you gotten I, better at? The, well, this is, I, have you gotten better at taking compliments? Like that that was something I was I you know I reread Joel's piece, and there's this com there's this thing that Tobias Wolf says. It says. He's such a generous spirit. You'd be embarrassed to behave in a small way around him. Yeah. That's like the best that, compliment I ever. I pretty much jump off a cliff after that <laughs> one. And, and especially considering that he was my teacher and my yeah. Yeah, great, great human being. So, uh, yeah, I mean. How do you take, like, I, I, this is just moving into the, like, personal advice mm -hmm. section of our conversation. <laughs> but how do you take a compliment like that? Like, ha have you gotten better at that? Do you have to get better at that after like a year? Like I think you've had? yeah. Well, actually, you know, that's a great point because for me it was sort of a, a developmental issue because uh, maybe like a lot of people, the first thing is to cringe and go, "Oh no, 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 no," you know. But that, but I started to think that that's uh, a form of egotism too. You know, you're making too much of it. And I saw people that I really respected being complimented, and they always just say thanks. And they um, they may they may you know struggle a bit inwardly to try to make sense of it, not to make too much of it, not to make too little of it. But I think the the first level is the basic manners of saying thanks for saying that. It means a lot to me, you know. And then the second beat that I have tried to sort of internalize this whole last year has been to say, well, I don't know if that's true, but I, I'm really going to try to make it true, you know. So if someone says, this is, you're a really good writer, yeah, the jury's out, but I'm really going to try to do that. And Or another way of saying it is if you, and, and I would imagine it'd be true whether the, the, the wall coming at you was negative or positive, for you to say, uh, I, I hope I can take all this energy that's coming to me and convert some of it in, to a positive aim you know mm -hmm. so if i had a year like this and then turned into a nervous egotistical <laughs> leather pants wearing jerk you know then it's a waste but if i can take the good stuff and and sort of convert it into increased attentiveness to my art and, and uh, maybe confidence maybe you know then that's good and i think that's all you can really do i don't think you can control you can't control the part of yourself that gets full of shit you know it's like <laughs> if you eat a bunch of beans it's not a sin that you get farty. That that's kind of human nature, but you could, you know, you could. Well, I don't know. I don't know where that <laughs> metaphor goes. But you, but but in this you case, just you aspire know, to eat the beans. Well, you could hold. You could hold back a little bit, and not. But I, I think in this situation, you, you with, to get as much attention and, and praise, you're going to end up being a little bit swollen in the ego. There's no way around it. So the only thing you might do wrong is not it, not look at that and not admit it and not kind of try to, you know, work with it on a daily basis. It's helpful that you've been thinking about ego for a long time yeah yeah uh, so you were like you, you know your your uh ego force field was like pretty well built up you've been doing that those exercises for a long time yeah and it's i mean it's a good thing to i think just to uh i, th I think as a kid i uh my dad owned restaurants and i noticed 
at first that work was hard. We had these two franchises on the south side of Chicago, and so I worked there all through high school. And it was, could be weirdly grueling. We did catering, and we do, and and in doing that work, I noticed that you could either come at it and kind of go, oh, that's hard. I should be studying, or which well, I'd never worry. <laughs> but, but you know, you could <laughs> more come, homework. You, yeah, more, you could find, uh, you know, problems with it, or you could turn around. You could just mentally decide to turn around the other way and and treat it as some kind of training for something or other. So I think that's kind of the way to see most of this artistic stuff is that you can't control the phenomenon that comes at you. You can't, you know, some books will get too much praise for what they are. Some will get too little. Some will get ignored. Uh, you can't control that. But but when the, the wall comes at you, you can, you, you know, you can choose what to do with it. I, I had on that a trip with to, to Africa with Clinton. He, he, I asked him about that period when he was so intensely criticized and all these haters. That's him now, Mr. President. I can't talk right now. We're on an interview. <laughs> Shut up, Clinton. Yeah, yeah, I'm about to mention you, sir. Yes. Okay. Just ha- randomly hanging up phones. I mean, Jackson. Sorry, whose ever office this is. Yeah, that, that was probably not that was a nice. Probably thing their, to do. That was probably their landlord. <laughs> but um, but he but he said that one of the. I think he got this advice from Hillary, which was that when criticism comes, your first impulse is to defend yourself and maybe even attack the attacker. But she said the wiser thing to do is let the let the criticism hit, and then uh, see what sticks. And likewise, I think with praise, you know, praise comes. You not all praise is well calibrated or deserved, so you let it wash over you, and then a couple weeks later, see what has stuck. And again, you kind of dedicate that to doing something positive the next time. You know, that's a that's a good answer. All right, let's let's go back. You're talking about your childhood and working at the restaurant in Chicago. I, we've had on a lot of young writers who are talking about how they're trying to make it and uh, this sort of one of the most consistent questions we get from listeners is the sort of economics of writing as a young person and you know you teach at uh syracuse you're working with young writers all the time (laughs) shit that's one now uh what what do you what do you do in this maybe you should just pick it up and be like hello george saunders put on speakerphone Maybe just let it ring in that. It'll be like a newsroom kind of effect. Yeah. 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 We're just sitting there. <laughs> I'll stop randomly yeah. hanging up the phone. But I'm, I'm interested in um, in that period of your life. And, and one of the things that's kind of emerged, which is also your story, is is people taking jobs that are not their art. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, uh, we had like Gay Talese on the show yeah. a couple months ago, and he had this great answer that was like, if you want to do this, you should go drive a taxi, work in a restaurant, yeah. and and give yourself the space to really do the work as opposed to trying to put the demands of your uh, days uh, to feed I yourself totally and do it. That. I call it the Shelley Winters analogy. In the Poseidon Adventure, there's a scene where Shelley Winters, who was in the movie as a former swimmer, and this boat is upside down, and she has to, to save them. She has to swim this long-ass corridor and come out, you know, and so she's the longest swim she's done in years. So I thought you don't want to be that person, you know, who says, uh, you know, I have no money uh, until I write my first book, and I'm, and I'm frozen until I write my first book because that's a long hallway, and it might be that you don't make it to the end before you run out of breath, you know. Right. So... I think I think that's great advice. Have some kind of functional life, or maybe it's like this: to conceptualize yourself as a writer, no matter what you're doing. You don't have to be in an MFA program. You don't have to have an advance. You know, you're whatever you're doing. You're uh, subjugating that or sublimating whatever to to the the real task of your life, which is to write. And mm-hmm. and then part of that would be a kind of a faith that if you happen to wind out in the culture under some rock in the culture, it doesn't matter which rock that's an interesting rock you know that for me that was the thing because my first book uh well the book before my first book and my first book were written while i was a tech writer and uh 
my first thing was, oh my God, I'm doomed, you know. And then well, where where were you doing your tech writing? Uh, first in Albany at this place called uh, what was it called Sterling Drug? It was a pharmaceutical company. And then then I got a job in uh, Rochester, New York, with an uh, environmental company, just in a kind of office park. Yeah. Uh, but at first, my my thing was that you know I have to be a journalist or I have to. to and uh, did you try those things? Well, this was actually after the MFA, so I tried that, and then I tried to get a job as a journalist, and I, I came in second in this one uh, thing up in the Adirondacks, and did anything. And we were just in a hurry, you know. We it's had, like in a journalism contest? No, no, no. It was like an, an interview, you know, an application, yeah. and it was a small. It was like so little money, but it was worth it to me to be able to say I was kind of following in Hemingway's footsteps. But they didn't hire me, so um, and you know we were kind of in, we didn't have a lot of time to fart around. We had a, we had uh, daughters. So, um, but, so I, I remember being in that job at first and going, this is all wrong. You know, this is not my thing. How can I write? And then uh, gradually you start to think, well, it's a culture. You know, there, there's people here, suffering people, happy people, people speaking specialized languages. So somehow it's got, you're, you're under a rock and you're learning something about American culture. So, so maybe you, you would understand your artistry to be, put me anywhere. I'll find human beings. I'll find human interests. I'll find literature. And I guess you could argue the weirder the place, or maybe the, the less explored the place, the better. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't need another novel about about fishing boats, probably, or whatever. I don't know <laughs> that that's a big topic, but, but, uh, uh, yeah, you know, the idea that if you find yourself in a really strange, even in my case, a situation I didn't like very much, slowly it started to seep in that it was, of course, it could be literature. Why not? You know. Hi, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week, Audible. Audible is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. Uh, they're being very generous this week. They've got a special offer just for our listeners. Um, Audible is pretty great. They've got like 150,000 books. Anything you can want to read is on there. They've also got magazines. Uh, you can get the New Yorker read to you aloud. That just sounds so luxurious to me. Audible is anywhere that you listen to this, that you listen to anything else, your phone, your tablet, your computer. Uh, it works across everything. Uh, here's the best part. Audible is offering long-form listeners a free audiobook and a 30-day trial. All you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. That's audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Uh, not only are you getting a free audiobook and a 30-day trial if you go there, but you're supporting the show. That's how they track it is if you use that URL. So go there if you are interested Inaudible, audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Uh, while you're there, if you need some suggestions for what to read, uh, John Mualem's Wild Ones, that's on Audible. Uh, Gay Talese, his anthology of sports writing, that's on Audible. Uh, the Bling Ring by Nancy Jo Sales, definitely the most fun book I read in 2013. Uh, that's on Audible. So are 150,000 other books. Uh, you will find something you like. Go check it out, audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Okay, back to me and George. And where, how are you fitting in your writing around that? You know, you're a young father of two and you had this job you're going to every day. You guys were pretty broke, it mm-hmm. sounds like. How did you fit your writing into the rest of your life? Well, part of it was just changing the definition of what fitting writing meant. It just meant doing it at all, you know. Uh, uh, so a lot of times at work, you could, I had this uh, word perfect was in vogue and shift F3 was the way you toggle screen. So you could put a story up and find, you know, maybe. We build our hours, so if you had a fat enough task, you could say, I can afford 15 minutes here. Or or sometimes you were, this is where you didn't want to be, was it's called on overhead. <laughs> that meant that the company was paying your salary directly, yeah. and they didn't like that. And if you were on overhead too much, they would they would cut you. But So it was kind of like, hmm, I'm on overhead for three hours today. Should I, should I go down the hall and try to find 
something ah, maybe maybe I'll just do an hour of work first and then go do it so there's a lot of that uh, and then also you know working at night a little bit but on the bus on the way home I remember very distinctly this that title story from Civil Warland I had I had made some kind of breakthrough and I had it just in hard copy and just uh maybe uh maybe an hour-long bus ride we had a in, like a long way like an inefficient route home mm-hmm. and just editing it you know getting through one real close edit and you knew you had time because it was an hour uh, of maybe two or three pages and saying okay that's good enough for today you know I, I hadn't done any harm i had actually i knew i had moved the ball forward a little bit i could then you know enjoy the rest of the day and then the next morning go in and put those changes in print it out and then wait for an opportunity you know so i, I love that idea that like you know that you you hear about these idyllic sort of like writing spaces and you know like the shed in the woods with the, i have that now i know you yeah yeah that i have that now but I think it's good to hear that, like, sometimes you just have to, like, do it on a fucking bus. No, I, and I think that, you know, it's it was great training because it, it, you couldn't yeah, be Yeah, how did it affect your writing? It. It, well, well, the nice thing was, it, you know, it was, one, you never sat down when you didn't feel a certain urgency. Or in my case, it's uh, if I feel happy, that's when I really would like to write. Just a little bit sort of, yeah, like upbeat. Uh, so if I didn't feel like it, I, I, it was easier to not do it. That was one thing. Uh, usually, often it would be, you know, kind of walking around doing some other job-related thing and going, oh, you know, there's a good sentence. And then just dashing back and putting it down and hoping that you could maybe get a little extra beat out of it. You know, you had you thought of this sentence, and then maybe I can get two more. Boom, boom, boom. Go back to work. Uh, and then the other thing was there's a lot of cross-firing between the tech writing because in that, you know, job, they don't want beauty. They want efficiency, you know. Right. So uh, I would write, the text reports were in 12 point and then Times Roman, and I would do the stories in 10, just to <laughs> distinguish. But it, there was a lot of carryover just in terms of your, uh, I don't even know what part of your body it is, but your editing thing was geared to a very, very terse, fact-only style. Right. And then it's, when you flipped over to fiction, that would kind of still be in effect. So it, it produced some kind of interesting, you know. There's one other part of that period that I just want to uh, make sure we talk about, which is uh, actual dollars, like actual money, mm-hmm. and and how uh, having a job and having some money coming in allowed you the space to grow as a as a writer. I think like there's um, again, it's a thing we hear over and over mm-hmm. again when we have folks on. I mean, people who come on the show have have uh, made it to some yeah. degree, and a question that people have over and over again is, how did you fund it before you made it? Yeah. And what they want to hear often is it's impossible to do. Right, right, right. Because <laughs> it right. seems so hard yeah. way before you've made it. So right. maybe you could just... Well, I mean, the truth is, even after you've quote-unquote made it, you, it's not funded. You know, that that was my big shock, because I thought, I always thought, once you get a book published, you're set. And that, you know, the book that when I sold the first book, it wasn't a ton of money, but it was all right. But you get it in four payments, and New York State takes, and the federal government takes half of it, you know. So we there was no question of quitting work even after the, the first book. Um, but I, my thought was, I kind of... You know, I tell my students, part of the deal is to know yourself psychologically, know which conditions you can work under. And it's, there's not any right or wrong. I mean, people just have different um, dispositions. But I knew I wouldn't do well with two kids and, you know, poverty, real poverty or unemployment. I, I didn't, that did not appeal to me a bit, you know. I, I couldn't, I knew I would not be able to do it. It puts too much pressure on the work then, you mm-hmm. know, if you're, so I thought, let me get just get myself in a position to do uh, kind of a passable middle class life. And because my engineering background, I had I could get a tech writing job, and then I felt like it freed up everything else. If I had that covered, then uh, whatever else I wanted to do was all right, you know. So it was, in a weird way, that that stability 
led to a kind of permission giving for real artistic wildness. Right. Yeah. It allowed, allowed you to take some risks with yeah, the work. Because I was only really taking risks, you know, in that space. Everything else was spoken for. You know, we, we were really busy and uh, the work was pretty uh, hard, actually. It was technical work and, and, uh, phys- and actually even sort of physically hard in a way because you would put out these reports and these kind of gonzo you know five-day bursts and stuff so and then my wife and i were you know we didn't know how to have babies and we said we're that was that was interesting and great and challenging (laughs) uh so so the one time when i could really be uh a little wild was in those 15 or or an hour or whatever of writing a day and i really i took that as permission like okay i can really swing wild during this time because i'm covered on the rest of it what was the thing that allowed you to quit the job? Uh, the getting the Syracuse job. I actually, I didn't quit. I took a year leave. Uh, Toby Wolf, my former teacher, was there, and he said, "You know, we're having a they're having a kind of a controversy, and everybody was quitting." So he said, "Could you come for a year?" And uh, I went on the interview, and actually didn't have a good time at all. It was I found it really stuffy, and because they had this, even though you'd gone there. Yeah, it was a different, you know, different thing, and they'd also had this big controversy within the department. So the students were kind of uptight and, and angry. And um, I called my wife during the during the interview actually, and said, "I this <laughs> like they while off- you were sitting at the desk." No, I'd done my reading, and, and I had one more thing to do, and the reading hadn't gone well at all. Nobody laughed. I thought, "Oh man!" So I called her. I said, "Look, for just for my own protection, from the rest of my career, don't let me take this job, no matter what happens." She said, "Okay." And then they offered it to me, and I think I think Toby called her and said he he really needs to do this, and he was so right. You know that would have been a major fiasco if I hadn't taken it. Um, so so that was a. But then I took a leave of absence for the job from that job for a year to see how it went, and then after that I got the full time job. And but I still have dreams of that jo- of um you know going back to that job going de- back to in, in defeat you know <laughs> usually naked and and they would be like oh. And, you know, there you were always trying to get uh, um, some hours from right. somebody. So the dream is you go in there and they're like, you don't even know the c- new computer programs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, please. I... Yeah. When, when did those dreams stop? Well, I, I don't know because Radiant is closed now, so I can't go back there even if even it really goes <laughs> Oh, bad. you're fucked. Yeah, I know. Now I have to find a whole new company. You have no options. Um, well, let's talk about your journalism because this, this is a, a podcast about that. Um, and... Uh, I have a bunch of questions. One of them, I guess, is just how how your fiction informs your nonfiction. Um, and I'm thinking more when I ask that, less about the um, the essays mm-hmm. and more about the kind of reported stuff yeah, that sure. you've done, like that, all those GQ kind yeah, of travel yeah. pieces. Well, you know, the, the biggest thing it did was that it, uh, having done all those years of, I guess, constructing prose out of nothing you know you're you're kind of working uh with imaginary situations to produce good prose then what i noticed is when i went into situations i could i could feel things that were happening that would translate into good prose so i i I, the example i think of is uh i did that piece on the mexican border and there was an interlude where these um uh, militia guys were going to take us out that night and we were going to patrol the border. And so in the afternoon they prepped us and they hadn't been to this place and they went out to this the site, got totally lost. It was like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. You want to get that? Uh, yeah, no, I don't think I it's, uh, yeah. it's one of those guys. But um, so the other, the real reporters were like, this is a waste. We are, we're getting nothing here. This is, you know, there's nothing happening except these idiots are getting lost. But because I, you know, I'd spent a lot of time trying to do comic dialogue this was like a gold mine. You know, you could see the, and I, I could see the way that I could dress it up in prose to make it just as funny as it actually was. So that was kind of a nice thing to, to, uh, had you done journalism? Before? No, never, never. Yeah. And, I, it, and I never have, I don't think those are, I mean, a real journalist would probably quarrel with the, you know, they're, they're pretty, uh, they'd only quarrel with them because they were upset. They couldn't do them. Themselves. No, I don't 
but there, there, it was, um, I think part of it was, well, Andy gave me great advice. He said, I said, well, I, you know, I hadn't met him and they were giving me some pretty good money to go to Dubai. And, uh, so of course at the last minute, you know, you clench up, like, I, I wish someone could reassure me that I could do this. And I said, well, what's my assignment? And he said, ah, oh, you know, 12,000 words that are literary and funny. <laughs> but that was kind of like, I, I thought I can do that. I mean, he's not asking for a, you know, a scathing investig- investigative piece. He just wants 12,000 words that are literary and funny. Uh, and then the other part was that in fiction, at least the way I work, I'm, I'm always looking for the next event. What's the next meaningful event? And a lot of my process is to come up with three or four that turns out aren't right, like just sort of false turns. Uh, that takes a lot of time. And the, and the, you know, the uh, sort of litmus test is, is the prose that's generated good enough to stay? And if it is, then by de facto, then that's the, that's the course you have to take. That takes a lot of time for me. Uh, so in fiction, there's very little, uh, outline, no outline. I'm just kind of feeling my way in the dark. With the nonfiction, I usually come back with uh, lots of notes, mm-hmm. notes to self, and maybe like eight things that I was pretty sure would go in there, eight nuggets, like bits, you know. Uh, and then I usually would start by just writing those eight bits and seeing if they if they worked as well as I thought they did. Were those bits things you had seen or thoughts you had had because both. both both yeah and there were literally that was the interesting part is the the um the categorization scheme was not efficient in other words sometimes it was thursday afternoon and sometimes it was thoughts on strength you know right. but if if the thing wrote well then it was a module and you know the way that works is that sometimes the thoughts on strength ends up getting plugged into some active thing but for me the main thing was is does the pro stand on its own is it a nice little bit uh if it wasn't, it didn't get to go in the piece. And if it did, then that defined the structure. But mm-hmm. you didn't really know what the structure was until you saw what eight bits you had to arrange, that, that kind of thing. So it was great because it, it meant that you um, – it wasn't that I went faster, but I could go with a little more certainty. It was a little more methodical to say, all right, well, I don't know what to do today. I guess I should write that bit with the sheriff because I'm pretty sure I'll use it. So you write it, you know, and just like that. The um, the one of those that, that – has stuck with me the most that I, I uh, reread a bunch of times before we talked was um, the uh, Buddha boy story. Mm, yeah. um, and I wonder if maybe you could just kind of walk us through that, that one in particular, because it, maybe even more than the other ones, mm. that one is you go to Nepal, mm. you take this trip, but it's, it's so much about translating what's going on in your head yeah. as, yeah. as much as what you're seeing you're sort of reporting on your own emotions. Right, which I think you always are. That, that's the thing, you know, and I, I was uh, really blocked on every one of these pieces until I re- re-remembered that, that, uh, you know, you, you say, what's, nothing's happening in this story. Well, actually something's always happening, which is you're, you're revising your expectations. Or even if you're just getting nervous about the fact that nothing's happening, something's happening. So that piece, I love that one because it was, I love doing that one because it was one case where the internal monologue and the events dovetailed just by accident in a really wonderful way. I didn't know, you know, the way things would turn out. And uh, so I think that was just uh, somebody at GQ, uh, maybe it was Andy, or I said, you know, there's this kid in, in Nepal who's been meditating for six months without eating. Do you want to go see him? I'm like, yeah, sure. Uh, and I think at the beginning, I just thought, well, the, the, re- the rhetoric of the piece will have to be, I catch him. You know, I prove right. that he's cheating, or at least I, I figure out how he's cheating. Um, 
so uh, you know i went and and, and the, the piece in part is just those various logical things falling away like ah, that's not he's not doing it that way he's not doing it that way and then a little bit more of a leap of faith which is to say this doesn't feel like an atmosphere where cheating would be the thing and i don't see anybody here who's inclined to do that or has real motivation to do it you know so. well there's also this ambiguity where you sort of land in a place that's like who kind of who gives a fuck if he's cheating like yeah, well right the, exactly like the you can decide whether or not he's cheating yeah. uh, on your own you're never going to actually know and the decision what you choose to decide is actually more interesting than what's really yeah. happening well it's right it's kind of a mirror on your own uh sense of the world you know if because if, I've, I've even before the trip i said to people there's this kid oh what a bunch of crap, you know? Well, all right, so that tells me something about you. I don't know about the kid yet, but I know something about you. Or you'd see people go, oh, I'm sure that's true. Well, why are you sure it's true? You, you know, that's equally kind of silly, you know, to be sort of like, uh, you know, perennially so new age that anything that's that, that seems untrue must be true, you know? So I, there's a, a friend of mine, very, very wonderful guy, and I just called him and I said, you know, what do you think? He said, because uh, I was kind of, I was, you know, my wife and I are Buddhists, and I didn't want to be sort of, weird and intrusive or disrespectful in any or in any way and this person just said well why don't you go and see which is like yeah yeah why don't i you know yeah. so that was that was great and then as you say you know even if he was somehow eating uh, for sure he had not moved in six months there right. you had reliable witnesses that yeah he'd never gotten up and uh, that's that and this and the night i was there was the coldest night in some 50 years or something <laughs> right. people were dying of shock you know and he sat there with a just basically a shawl, you know, right. for myself. It was, it was, While your mind was racing about oh, whether or not and I'm food. falling over asleep and cursing myself. And all. There's an, another interesting choice that I wanted to ask you about reading that story is is uh, that you don't actually mention that you're Buddhist or that you meditate, right. even though the story is kind of about meditation and about you trying to meditate. Yeah. Well, at that point, I was in that's a, like, That's like I tremendous was, patience to well, not I was a be, that. Well, I was also honest because I was a, a beginner who had taken a hiatus. So it seemed to me more false to say I'm a Buddhist because... Because at that point, it was a pretty, uh, you know, it was a, a stretch to say that I was. And even when I, you know, I don't know that much about it. So I thought it, it, it seemed to me somehow more, um, you know, if your goal is to sort of take the reader with you, it was better to just leave that out and say, uh, I'll, I'll assume a basic knowledge of the things that are going on and you come with me and we'll go in. And that, you know, because in 12,000 words, it's not, that's not that many. And, mm -hmm. and you have to make real sacrifices uh Choices. You have to make choices about what will get the reader on your back, so you can move ahead, and what won't. And that was. Yeah, there's another uh, quote that I encountered. Uh, I think this was in an interview with Bomb Magazine a couple of years ago, but it like struck me because I think it's true for both the fiction and the nonfiction stuff. Which was, um, I'm essentially just trying to impersonate a first-time reader who picks up the story and has to decide at every point. Oh gosh! Oh gosh! <laughs> I like this. Yeah. <laughs> it can't get too serious because the phone's just going to ring. Yeah. Um, what you said was, I'm essentially trying to impersonate a first-time reader who picks up the story and has to decide at every point whether to keep reading. Right. Like, there's a fundamental sort of uh, entertainment aspect of, of what you're doing. Sure. And and does that carry through both yeah, the fiction and the totally. nonfiction? Yeah, totally. That's it. And I mean, and entertainment defined in a kind of high way, which is if an intelligent person... Uh, picks it up, they'll keep going. That you know, not not that you have to be all you know jokes and and, yeah. and fun, but but that um, you know, it's an intimate uh thing between equals. That I'm not I'm not above you talking down. We're we're on the same level. You're just as smart, just as worldly, just as curious as I am, and then that gives you a basis to do editing. I think you know to say, well, does this does this edition honor an intelligent reader, slightly boring intelligent reader? 
uh, insult an intelligent reader, and and then I think it's a pretty it's a good editing. Uh, yeah. You know. Okay, here's another thing I want to ask yeah. you about. Um, all right, some things I've read of yours while, while prepping for this interview. One is that story, mm-hmm. which uh, brought up in me many feelings and emotions, mm-hmm. and uh, made me want to be a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, several stories in Tenth of December, which had the exact same experience, mm-hmm. um, and I reread your commencement address at Syracuse, um, which was about kindness and how none of us will regret uh, being too kind on our deathbeds. Um, And the thing that struck me about those three things was that in these various forms, it felt like um, the gap between you, George Saunders, and the work that you are producing, the values that you espouse as a person Mm -hmm the values that are espoused in your writing, that gap feels really small. Hmm. And I've always sort of thought that the gap between the values that you espouse and the way you are in the world is, is a decent barometer of, uh, someone's sort of uh, not happiness, but, hmm. uh, at what level they are at peace, hmm. you know, the, the lack of bullshit basically. And so I guess my question is like, has that gap, gotten narrower for you as you've gone on and does that gap relate to how good the writing is like can you do great work uh if that gap is huge if it's does if it's not really you yeah that that one i'm not sure let me sidestep that one because that's a really good one that's hard uh i th- i think hmm, thank you for i mean that that's nice to hear I, I i when i'm more inclined to think about well there's actually three things there's the the work there's the person I seem to be and the person I actually am. Because yeah. even that, you know, there's a gap. But, but you know, if you know yourself, you know the, the ways that you're, uh, you know, that you're that you're not living up to your own standards. Not, not I mean, and nothing big, but just even in your in the way your mind works and and your own uh, sort of reliability as a, a decent person and so on. So that I'm mostly I'm just thinking about that, um, trying to trying to bring myself up to speed. For example, I, I'm a pretty anxious person. And uh, that gets in the way of a lot of things that I like to. I'd like to be not so anxious, you know. But I think what's happened to me over the last, well, maybe since the beginning of my writing thing is that gap has closed, in the sense that. But it's a technical thing, you know. You when you're, I don't think I'm a different person than I was at 28. Uh, but my chops were such that I couldn't accommodate certain valences, let's call them, you know. Um, and I think what's happened is I'm, as you get older, you get more confident that if something's true to you, there is a way to represent it entertainingly. You know, that, that if, it's, if it happens to a person, it's not, it can't possibly be non-art. And when I was younger, I thought, well, I guess so, but I don't, I don't feel that. I, there are things that are too sentimental, too soppy, too, or, or, or too dark for that matter. But I think what's happening is, you know, you, maybe you get older and you get a little more confident in your personhood and you say, oh, I just felt that. That's valid, you know. And then you say, if it's valid, there must be a way of making the prose jam, you know. So, like in this, in the tenth of December, there's a in that story, there's a moment at the end where he just his his because of the structure, his thought turns towards his wife, and I uh, just turn my thoughts toward my wife, you know. And and what came out was probably the truest thing I've ever written about our relationship for sure, you know, about love. And uh, it wasn't sappy, and it was actually pretty good prose. And the reason it was is because I wasn't trying to make it anything other than what it was. I was trying to make it true as quickly as I could. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit stammering and a little bit indirect and, and hedging, but 
it it seems to me it was pretty good prose. So that was a big moment for me because I thought, oh, maybe even the really positive things that you feel that you've always roped off as being too sappy, uh, if you say them urgently enough, they can, of course, why not? You know, and then, then once you think that, you start reading the, like Tolstoy and Shakespeare and you see that's what they're doing all the time, those bastards. You know, <laughs> they're always turning their mind to something that you and I have thought millions of times, but maybe we always said, well, that's not for writing. You know, right. and Shakespeare said, "Yeah, it is." You know, if I felt that it, it's for writing, no, so. and and is that true for both? I mean, is that true for both fiction and nonfiction? Like, I, yeah, part of what's so striking about those GQ stories is is they feel unlike almost anything, not uh, absolutely everything, mm-hmm. but almost anything that that you'd read in a magazine. Yeah. Uh, well, that that was something that I got from Andy because he would. Uh, he did one thing he he taught me which he just sort of said several times it doesn't have to be funny because i had this i had this thing that that's who i was i was a funny writer and he said yeah sometimes you are but you don't have to be funny which is an incredible uh blessing really to have somebody that you respect say that and then in his in terms of his editing he would just um well what i learned with him to back and forth is if i said what i thought was true he never said that doesn't go in here you know, he would say, let's make it better, you know. So so that was really, those pieces actually were, that's how I started to say it earlier, those pieces were kind of like the the seeds of, of 10th of December because there were some moments where sometimes just as simple as going into a hotel room, a hotel ballroom or something, and needing to describe it. But that that is actually a, a workmanlike task, you know. So to say, i got to describe this hotel in Dubai, uh, I can't be too clever because I want you to see it. Then to find out, oh, actually, I do have some skills in that area. There is, I, I can distinguish between a shitty description of a room in Dubai and a really good one, and I can I can move towards the good one. So that opened up a lot of doors for me when I went back to fiction somehow. And I can't exactly articulate it, but there yeah. were, again, the sense that if you feel it, you you should be able to dress it up in prose that's, that's uh, not, not even dress it up, present it in prose that is good. That, that's totally fine. You know, you can do it. Do you know... Uh, when something's good, like do you, do you know it immediately? Is that is sometimes? That... Sometimes, sometimes I do, and then other times I I do and I'm wrong. And uh, so my whole thing is iteration. You come back enough times, uh, in enough different frames of mind, on enough different days, with enough different uh, wrong-headed preconceptions, and you just keep hitting it over and over again. And slowly over time, it starts to solidify and become uh, somewhat undeniable. You know. So I, I think the thing is, it's like. I, my feeling is the answer would be yes and no. Yes, I do know, except when I don't. And, you know, and, and that. But I mean, that's kind of a joke. But in a way, the the downfall of my my downfall as a young writer was that I I always knew. Uh, sometimes I I knew it was good. Sometimes it was bad. But now I'm just like, yeah. Yesterday it seemed pretty good, but I'm open. You know, if yeah. it's not. And and weirdly, if you do that, it does kind of start to settle down a little. There are lines that you. You've read fifty times. You're like, that's a, that's a keeper. Just, I'm not really looking to cut you. Just be calm, you know. And and uh, yeah, so I, I think you kind of know, but you also, it's it's just that um, to me, fiction, well, any kind of prose is such a great training in what real openness might be because you can't be a wuss. You can't be without an opinion. That's not it. But you do have to be willing to negotiate. You know, willing to look fresh, freshly at something. And uh, even a piece that was perfect yesterday can fall apart the next day. Well. Which day is right? You don't know. Right. You know, you have to come back a third day. And so to me, that that's a really great uh, freshness training. You know, and it sounds like as your confidence grows, 
you get more comfortable in the ambiguity of it. Sure. And even the, the defeat of it. I think there are times when you can just go, well, that sucks. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you know, and, and after doing it this long, you know that that's only part of the long narrative. You know, right. You, you can, can say, well, it sucks and then not stay in bed for a week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, three days. <laughs> no, I, I think that's really true. And so you get um, a sense of workability. That's a word I like to think about. Workability. Like something is workable. People are workable. They're not, um, you're not locked into your relationship to a piece of prose or to a person you can kind of come back to it again and again and, and see do you think you're going to do more of those stories i'd like to i'm kind of I, i'm almost holding them in reserve as a treat to myself but i'm, I'm working on this other uh, a piece of fiction now and uh it's threatening to be a little longer and i'm thinking if i can nail that one i'll give myself the gift of working with andy on one of those long ones you know because they were they were really the last one i did was that that tent city thing yeah, in fresno, in fresno. And that was terrifying and it almost why was that terrifying? Well, I didn't. I think we didn't know what it was going to be, and I, uh, we, I had a tuition payment due, and uh, and I said, well, maybe I'll do a GQ piece, and they said, oh yeah, what do you want to do? And we were looking at something in Burma and stuff that would take months to get visas, and I said, and then they said, well, what about a tent city? And I'm like, oh, we could do that. You know, I could get out there like next week or something. Yeah, but I think we all had the idea it was going to be kind of you know good spirited middle-class people who just lost their houses and were wearing bandanas and playing guitars were Steinbecky, you know and it turned out we just went right into a crack uh, a two-gang uh crack house that was out in this old rail yard yeah. and uh there are people who've been out there 20 25 years and it, it was uh, a savage you know a savage place and somehow the fact that it wasn't in another country made it even scarier because it wasn't like you you didn't get a a foreigner exclusion. You know, you were just this middle-aged white dude who they maybe suspected was, was didn't belong there. You know, um, and all you know, and also you talk about monitoring your own thoughts, your own reactions during a story. I really, you know, I found out about myself that I thought I was going to be like, you know, Charles Dickens or or maybe Jesus going out there and <laughs> saying, "Hello, come unto me." You know, it's all right. And uh, immediately that became fear, which of course converts into uh, anger discomfort irritation get me the fuck out of here stop talking you know i got on my tent and i mean i i, I kept it very calm and i think actually i would pr- I, I hope i was pretty nice but but the um my benevolence that i you know in my middle age have flattered myself is part of my personality it was gone the first night there was no it was just like fear and uh kind of almost like a speed like agitation that i couldn't shake you know um do you think after your year of wild success you would be more jesus-like if you had no the no no i mean that was the thing you know i wouldn't be more jesus-like because i'm not more jesus-like and that that just is like um stripping away the paint us you know the surficial flattering self-flattering paint that we put on ourselves you know and i think the danger of a year like this is that you're you are in a bit of a bubble you know you're in a bubble of success uh you're getting good news you go somewhere people are happy to see you you get that little bit of uh it's just a kind of a in, in Thirty Rock. There was a part where John Hamm gets this bubble because he's so good looking, you know. Yeah. And I think having Everyone success is like a great cook. And yeah, stuff. and yeah. he speaks French beautifully. Right? Yeah. But I think that any kind of success, whether it's writing or not, or just the, the basic sort of you know uh, affluence that we get in America when you, as we get older, usually um, some people do. That has a way of you know the, the, you think the world changed. You know, it's people's reactions to you that's changed. But you think, oh, there's no more suffering. Nobody's unsuccessful. No, you know, <laughs> nobody's unhappy. Uh, and of course, it just means you're not. You know, like at this stage of my life, I'm pretty convinced that nobody smokes pot anymore. You know, <laughs> but it's I, I'm guessing they probably do. But just because I don't, in my you know my circle, David Brooks doesn't. Yeah, no, 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 no way. 
but you know, so there's a, there's a way in which you can delude yourself to think that because your circumstances have changed, have changed that there's the world is different. And uh, so yeah, I, I wouldn't, I really wouldn't want to go back there. I don't, I don't think, you know, because part of it was what does benevolence look like in that situation? And the closest I got to it was being a good listener. You know, being um, being able to. Sort of wrestle my anxiety into a box and actually listen to some something that somebody was telling me and ask some reasonable questions. Uh, other than that, you know, in terms of what could you do for for these folks, it was really complicated, you know, because they had been done for a lot of them, you know, and and it hadn't taken. A lot of them were addicted, and a lot of them were uh, out of mental institutions, and and I, that was maybe the thing that, that became most agitating was. Mm, that you could see and then be absorbed into these destructive patterns that people were had been caught caught in for twenty or thirty years, you know, and you really saw that there wasn't, you didn't really have a whole lot of power to help. You know. Um, when I was reading through all your stuff, there were these three uh, words that kept coming up all the time, and one was grace, and and uh, and that w- that tended to be around money and sort of like the the grace that money can bring. And I think, you know, we sort of talked about that in terms of like how you were freed up to do your work mm-hmm. and confidence came up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we've talked about that too. And the, the third one that comes up again and again is uh, decent and the idea of just being a, a, a decent person. We only have a couple minutes left. So yeah. um, I want to make sure that I, I talk to you about that. And, and then I guess I'm interested in whether being a decent person has always been as important to you as it appears to be now, whether that's always been part of your personality. Uh, yeah, but not. I, I think there were times where there were other things that were more important. You know, be, being uh, successful or being uh, whatever. You know, graduating from college that was a big one. But I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think I, it, those things go together. As you get older and more confident, you start to see that the other stuff really does. It really does recede. It isn't that important. But if you, but if you're uh, passably polite and decent and so on. And, and I, you know, the other thing is I, I talked to a, f- a friend the other day, he's an editor, and he said um, something really interesting that he thought that since the Reagan era, certain virtues uh, had been classified as soft virtues. So sympathy, empathy, compassion, uh, kindness, these are kind of like roped off, maybe because of the Carter years, you know, like these are weak virtues. And they were kind of uh, low, you know, lowered a little bit, and the other things, assertion, pragmatism, aggression, became sort of, you know, masculinized and and uh, preferred, and that's uh, in my life. That's kind of what's happened. You know, when I was younger, I was in Chicago, did a little bit of, you know, some fighting and some weightlifting and some, you know, and, and I had a real uh, idea that I wanted to be kind of manly, you know, and then uh, I think. We really do ourselves a disservice when we treat those virtues as somehow less valid than the hard virtues. You know, we a culture without this what I'm calling soft virtues is completely dysfunctional. You know, you can't you get in a position where you can't honor your actual feelings. You can't honor your actual uh, well. You're restricting the the range of tools that you have to bring to a complicated situation. You know, so you get into something like Iraq, and all you can think of is do we stomp their ass or not? You know, who I don't know. But but with the softer virtues, you have a you have an incredible range of um, uh, you can get into the detail work in a way you know that that really uh, makes sense. So I think in my own life, I've I've noticed that those soft virtues are actually really powerful, and uh, I guess to a certain extent, as I'm getting older, I'm trying to use whatever success I have to say, well, yeah, actually these are valid things. It's not it's not all you know mush. Well, 
you're saying them as you get more successful, but the way that when you say it, it is received mm-hmm. is also a sign that I think people are really hungry for it. Yes. Like that, yes. that commencement speech about kindness was like one of the most trafficked things on the New York Times last yeah. year. I mean, that, that's, that's amazing. It, I, it amazed me. It's because it's very simple. And one of the reasons it's so simple is because, one, it was eight minutes long, and two, I didn't think anyone, anyone else was going to hear it except these students that I kind of, you know, from my college. So I thought, well, I can't really support this or make it particularly stylistically wonderful. But let me just say it because I think it's true kind of simply. But I think you're right. I think people are hungry for it because they not they're hungry for it because they know from their experience how substantial it is it's not it's not misty it's not frothy it's it, um it's a it's one of the most powerful positions a human being can be in is to be uh completely loving if, you know you think of it if you if you were somehow able to be completely interested vitally interested in the benefit of other people you would be fearless you would be untouchable you know yeah. but what makes you makes us weak is when we say well yeah but I want my share too, or I don't want to look like an idiot, or I don't, you know. So I, and I'm nowhere, you know, this is the only thing about that speech that was a little uncomfortable is I, the speech doesn't say I can do it at all. It says I, here's the time when I didn't do it and it still was bitter. So, you know, I'm not comfortable being the spokesman for, for, for kindness, but. Well, that's interesting because I mean, like it, it seems like you, um, it's interesting to hear you say you're not comfortable in that role mm-hmm. because you seem to have taken that role in a way. And, I guess I'm maybe I should say I'm not comfortable being comfortable. I, you know, I, I do I do like the role, but ha- yeah, that's a little bit of a, a strange, you know, because I'm not really. I think uh, if you want to get technical, I'm not. I'm a very nice person, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, it's it sometimes in my life has been a, a passivity, really. But to be a kind person is actually different. Nice and kind aren't the same. Mm-hmm. And so, kind. Uh, one of the things I try to hint at in that speech is that kindness. If you press that button, there's a trap door that drops you into really deep water, you know, where suddenly you say, okay, well, I want to be kind. What does that mean? Uh, I want to benefit other people. What does that mean? Hmm. I don't know. You know, like in that homeless camp, I didn't really know how to benefit those people. It would take a a better mind than mine, or maybe a highly, a more highly developed sense of, uh, I don't know, spirituality or something to really know how to benefit somebody. Because half the time, you know, people who, who talk a lot about kindness, I think they're, um, and when I've done it, you know, your tendency is you, you go into the coffee shop and someone's just a little bit grouchy and you leap over the counter and embrace them. I mean, that, and that, which is not kind, you know, that's <laughs> weird, you know. So I think it's, I was lucky it's it was just an unnecessary it's, touching. Yeah, and it, does, it probably makes it worse, you know. So anyway, I, th- I think that um, it's a deep, it's a deep thing and it's kind of a, uh, a gateway virtue. But I think you're exactly right that people, especially, you know, I think younger people, uh, I, I noticed they, they seem to intuitively know that that's, you know, you think about the 20th century, that big mess. I don't know we don't have much time left, but... Uh, but let's, let's tackle the 20th century. Yeah, we'll but 20th century, you know, every big fiasco had to do with some idiot having an idea. Strong idea of how if you just did this, we'll eradicate all suffering. You know, we get rid of the Jews. We social, you know, we, we socialize everything. We do this, we do that. And uh, the, the truth is, the, the, those ideas were never sophisticated enough the sophisticated ideas are the ones that jesus had and the buddha had which was you have to recognize that you're not the center of the universe that you're in in intimate connection with everybody take that you know now that's a system that we you know but but the systems that we've lived to you look at syria the system is uh as long as i can defeat my enemy virtue will reign and so so i think that maybe what we're seeing just in the collective wisdom is that the young the uh, the generation you know in their 20s and 30s senses that 
the the era of the big rectifying idea is is over and the virtues that that might help us are this, these so-called softer virtues in that speech um you, you use this thing that you've used in the past just, these are all people just, are trying to get tickets for the I, event tonight we're gonna have like no eight one, people out no there. one is coming call a different line i've hung up on like 20 people during this interview uh, or maybe the same most, person 20 is, times you've got to hope this, I, I feel like you should just pick up the phone and well, say hello well, wait no you know what you do is if you just unplug the phone this particular phone that would work so this is your technical writing thing yeah i think we just unplug that phone and that one won't ring anymore although that one might but i think i just turned that one off in a different way before yeah. now yeah. i'm breaking lights we clearly should get out of here yeah, soon yeah. some of this whole we're talking about kindness and destroying a perfectly nice independent bookstore in that in in that speech and in Buddha is this this construction that's that uh, sort of forces the listener the reader whoever to think about like being on their deathbed and what are you gonna really care about and what's really important and and what are your regrets and oh I want to ask you what those are for you well I don't know that you know that's the thing I I mean I've had intimations of it and uh you know, I, I I think part of the thing is I think you could do work in the time before your death to uh, get ready for it, and it, there's no facile. You know, that's what spiritual life is about, and the traditions that we all know, that's what they're about. You know, so I don't really know. I mean, for me, I, I think probably I would. Uh, well, I, I can tell you, it, it's that little gap between. You know when you're saying goodbye to somebody at the airport that you love and you get all soft? You're like, oh my God, I didn't even hardly, I hardly knew you. You know, that kind of feeling. What if that's the truth? That, that that mode is the mode, that times 10, you know, maybe, is the mode that we should exist in all the time. Then they, then another day you're just yourself, you know. Uh, there's a big gap between those two people. So uh, my regret would be how much time did I spend in that regular old stupid habitual mindset of taking everything for granted as opposed to this exalted state of being super tenderized to the people you care about and i'm guessing that you know uh if there's a heaven it's that at the airport times 10 or 20 or 1000 you know so i think the regret would be that you like a lunkhead you spent so much time in that normal state well i wonder what i'm gonna do today i hope my book is selling you know uh how do i look oh i'm going bald but but instead of that mode is habitual but we know from the occasional foray into it that the other mode is possible so then the speech basically says hurry up take my advice hurry up try to get into that higher state while you can how do you do it i don't know i'm i'm stupid i'm like a, a latecomer but but there's these thousands of years of spiritual traditions that wouldn't be a bad place to start and you know a lot of times in our culture there's this de facto humanist swagger that says oh yeah religion we used to do that shit you know <laughs> but um you know what my advice would be to anyone who wanted it was reconfigure your understanding of quote-unquote religion and make it exactly equal to, equal to that which will give you that airport state of mind more often and then go into the existing traditions and call through them to make it that you know or to try to find the the authentic elements of those traditions that are really about that because that's really what they're about you know is that the same answer you would have given if i'd asked you about regrets about your writing uh, no, yeah, well, yeah, it is kind of, I mean, it is. I, in other words, I, 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 you know, one of my favorite books is A Christmas Carol. And I know some people think that's corny, but I can never get through that book without crying my ass off. And uh, I would regret not having, and I won't do it. So it's, a regret's not the right word, but I am jealous of Dickens for having inhabited that space where he, someone could write that beautiful book. So um, I, I, I can tell you this, I, I have a little bit of regret 
that it took me so long to get to where I am now in terms of what you mentioned earlier, this closure between who I am and how I write. That it makes me I look back sometimes and go, Why what was happening when I was twenty six that I couldn't do more of that, you know. But uh, of course in in reality you just have to go up the mountain, you have to go up and you can't say, Oh, I should have done it in half the time. I mean, you just have to you know, accept it. Gotta enjoy it when it comes. Yeah, yeah. George, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern this week, Sarah Button. Uh, thanks very much to the fine people at McNally Jackson. I apologize for all that hanging up on your customers. Uh, and thanks uh, to George Saunders for, for taking the time. Um, I really just had a, I had a really good time. It was like uh, we, we recorded that on Friday night, and uh, I just had this goofy grin was plastered across my face all weekend. Uh, so thanks, George. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone... I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.